I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page, and to another glorious day in the Lord's neighborhood. I'm Page, your caffeine-imbued host. Here's my caffeine. <clears throat> in the beginning, coffee and low, it was very good. Well, today we're continuing on in Galatians. We're in chapter one still. We're going to be covering verses seven through 12. Paul starts off by saying, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? You know, Paul's fond of using athletic imagery to describe the Christian life. To him, life was a race. It demands discipline. If the race is to be completed successfully and the prize obtained, it demands discipline. Okay, we get that. The Galatians apparently had begun the race well. They had both assented certain truths that Paul brought and they adopted a Christian lifestyle. This is what it means to obey the truth. It was a heart and mind. It was, you say you have Christ in your heart and you show it by the way you live. You know, James says that in his letter. He said, you say you have faith. Good, good. I show you my faith by how I live, by what I do. The Galatians had changed their lives. They believed what Paul taught and they were pursuing God in a correct and honorable way. But in spite of this good beginning, something had obviously gone wrong. Ergo, this letter. In Paul's analogy about a race, he refers to the illegal interference of a runner who cuts in ahead of another and thereby disadvantages that runner. You could be running, uh, leading the race in the Boston Marathon. Then out of nowhere, somebody just jumps out of the crowd, jumps ahead of you, and finishes ahead of you thereby keeping you from winning the race. That's what Paul's referring to here. Somebody has cut in on you, Galatians, and is threatening to keep you from finishing the race. The situation in Galatia was one in which the Galatians were beginning to cease or had already ceased or in some measure ceasing to obey the plain truth of the gospel. Somebody had inserted themselves into the race and was forcing them off the path. Verse 8, he goes on, that kind of persuasion, i.e., that is salvation through works, legalism, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you, God. A little yeast works through a whole batch of dough. False teaching is like yeast. It grows and affects everything it touches. This alone would justify Paul's alarm at the state of affairs in the Galatian church. If left unchecked, their entire life is going to be destroyed. Verse 10, he goes on to say, but I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. 
the one who's throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Now, what does he mean when he says, no other view? Does it mean no other view other than the true gospel? That is, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view that the true gospel, other than the true gospel that I preached. Maybe it means their first opinions formed as a result of Paul's teaching. Could he be saying, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view than the view you had as a result of my teaching? Or could he be saying, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view than the teaching I brought to you and regarding the origin and danger of the legalizer's teaching. In other words, I'm confident that you will take no other view that their teaching is wrong and my teaching was right. No matter which meaning you apply to this, they could all it could be a combination one or the other or a combination of all. Paul is saying he has confidence in them that they will take no other view than that which is correct. All right, stand by. Paul is getting ready to express just how strongly he feels about these teachers, and he doesn't hold back. In verse 11, he says, Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. What does Paul mean by saying, if I'm still preaching circumcision. Apparently, this is an accusation that's been leveled at him by these legalizers and these false teachers. Maybe they're accusing him of being hypocritical, preaching a new gospel, yet still requiring circumcision. Uh, it's possible that this is based on what the time when he had Timothy circumcised, uh, a Gentile uh, follower of his pretty much Paul's right-hand man, if you will. It could be an accusation based on what he said in 1 Corinthians when he said, if you come to Christ and you're circumcised, stay circumcised. If you're not circumcised, don't get circumcised. Perhaps these false teachers are teaching him of being soft in that issue and just teaching it when it appeals to him or serves him. Paul is saying, if I'm still preaching circumcision as a requirement to get God's blessings or as a requirement to enter God's kingdom, if I'm still preaching that, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Paul is stating that the preaching of the cross is absolutely counter to man's natural mindset. Now, hang with me here. Why would Paul think his refusal to approve circumcision for Gentiles removes the offense of the cross? obviously for the same reason that he opposed it or any other human effort generally, as all these things, that is feasts, circumcision, ceremonies, legal observances, Paul opposes anything that is part of a system that seeks to attain standing before God through merit. In contrast, the cross proclaims our complete ruin without Christ. Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans that we're dead to God. Our natural condition is to be dead to Christ. We're not bent. We're not broken. We're dead. The cross proclaims our complete ruin in sin. This means that nothing we do or can do can save us. And it also proclaims our radical need for God's radical grace. The natural self does not understand this kind of teaching. In fact, it hates it because it strips away any pretense of spiritual achievement. It removes from us any path to God that is 
uh, a path of rules and regulations and stipulations. We can't do it. There is no path to God apart from Jesus. So if Paul is preaching circumcision, as he's being accused of, he's saying then the offense of the cross is negated. The offense of the cross is an important part of Paul's theology and should be a part of our theology. The cross says that we're dead to God. We need something that radical, i.e. the cross, to restore us to life. Christ died on the cross and he rose on the third day to purchase redemption for us because we have no hope outside of him. Paul says in Romans, all of us come short of the glory of God. Paul says in Romans that there is none that seeks God, none that seeks after him. We're all like sheep. We've gone astray. Paul's teaching about man's nature is that we are dead and dead people don't respond to stimulus. If you're weak, you can be given food and you can become strong and get up. If you're bent, you can be straightened. If you're broken, you can be repaired. But if you're dead, no amount of food is going to get you off the floor. Paul taught that we're dead and that a supernatural event has to take place in order for us, in order for us to become alive again. That starts with the death of Christ on the cross, followed by the resurrection of Jesus, which buys redemption for those of us who believe in him. In verse 12, Paul gets pretty harsh now. This is where he just absolutely throws his knockout punch to the legalizers. As for those agitators, false teachers, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Uh, this remark is powerful. Emasculation means castration. It's his wish, Paul says, that they, the legalizers, not stop with circumcision in their zeal for ordinances, but rather go on and castrate themselves. The sacred castration was part of a lot of pagan uh, rituals back in that first century. There were citizens of and adherents to different pagan religions that viewed castration as an act of worship. But for Paul to compare the ancient Jewish rite of circumcision to pagan practices, that's amazing to me. Paul puts the efforts of the Judaizers to have the Gentiles circumcised on the same level as the abhorred pagan practice of sacred castration. In Deuteronomy 23, it says, no one who's been emasculated, i.e. castrated, may enter the assembly of the Lord. Paul is stating that the false teacher's teaching on requiring circumcision makes their religion no different than the pagan religions that Israel is surrounded by. That's a hard word. Now, Paul is not denigrating the law. He's not denigrating Torah. This is an important thing here. He's not dismissing it. Judaism isn't bad. The law is not bad. Paul is clear in his teaching about that. If our struggle to obey the law is based on our devotion to God as an act of worship, then good. If our attempts to keep the law are an attempt are an attempt to gain God's favor or his blessings, then bad. The legalizers are taking something that is sacred and good, i.e. the law, Torah, and they're turning it into a religion that is no different than any other pagan religion on this planet. See, I love my wife. Therefore, I change my life out of my affection and adoration 
of her. My roadmap is whatever pleases her and does not grieve her. I love God. Therefore, I change my life out of my affection and adoration of him. My roadmap for this is whatever pleases him. And I find that in the Torah and the law. That's what pleases God. This is what God tells us. This pleases me. The entire New Testament is based on the application, this application of the Torah and the law. See, that's my roadmap. But the very minute I begin to demand that you abide by my punch list, which I referred to in a previous podcast, I become a legalist. As stated in a previous podcast, each one of us has our own punch list that God is walking us through as he molds us into the image of his son. Each of us is on a different stage of this construction project that we call our lives. We must be careful not to turn our religion, our faith, our our religion of grace and faith into one of blindly following rules and regulations. The world is full of religions that do that. Follow regulations, statutes. Our religion has rules. I'm not denying that. We have statutes. We have regulations. I'm not denying that. It's the motivation that underlies our pursuit of obedience of the law and the Torah that's at issue here. If we, and I can't repeat this in a stronger language, if we get caught up in demanding that others obey a set of rules in order to gain favor with God, that is no different than any other religion on the planet. But if we preach and practice grace and faith through grace, if we realize that we cannot earn God's favor, it's already given that we cannot earn entrance into his kingdom, it's already granted. If you are in truth a believer of the Son of God, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, if that can be said of you, then on the day of judgment you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of thy Lord. But if you are of those who would force other people to live their lives according to what you deem important, You're no different than any other religious leader out there that tries to force people to live by rules and regulations and law. The Torah is not bad. It's good. The law is not bad. It's good. Your reason and your basis for applying the law or the Torah, that's what separates true believers from the legalists. See, I've been bought with a price. The death of God's only son. I have bowed my knee to him, and he has entered into my life. His Holy Spirit has changed me, and as a result, I'm a different man than I was. And I will be a different man years from now than I am now. God is changing me into the image of his Son. He has given me my own special punch list of things to work on in my life as he molds me into the image of his Son. I'm closer to being Christ-like now than I was in 75 when I first bent my knee to him. And I will be more like him 20 years from now than I am right now. God has purchased my salvation. I cannot earn it. As we're seeing in Galatia, it's very possible that we can take this wonderful faith that God has given us, this wonderful thing called Christianity, and we can turn it into something that bears more resemblance to the rest of the world than the kingdom of God. That's what's happening in Galatia. That is what Paul is combating. We must be careful not to turn our religion of grace and faith into one of rules and regulations. Mm. Good place to stop. I'm Paige. 
Here's my coffee. And I am out of here. Bye-bye. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at page, that's P-A-I-G-E, at coffeebiblepage.com.